0: Okay, today is August, excuse me, yeah, that's August. August the 21st. Okay, that's what the calendar says. All right, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. What would we do without Your Word? It changes not. It's alive and powerful. It keeps us straight. It encourages us. It sometimes steps on our toes. And now we have the great opportunity to be here to partake of that Word. You've given us the great system of perception to understand it. You've given us everything for us to be able to execute Your plan. So we pray that you will help us to focus so that we will not be led astray, that we won't get off course. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we go through this getting the gospel right, we go through uh, several scriptures. And we're going to go through some tonight that can be taken more than one way. In fact, there's a lot of scriptures that can be taken that way. And it's so important that we develop a proper theological system in our soul. Systematic theology. So that when we come to verses that we might not have studied in depth, and it appears that it says something contrary to what you know as orthodox doctrine, what the rest of the verses might say on any given subject, that you may pause and you might start looking at it closer to see what it says and how it harmonizes with the rest of Scripture. For that's what the Bible does. It harmonizes with all other parts of the Scripture. Now, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of different issues that the Bible addresses. One thing it always does is when it's addressing an issue, when a particular verse is touching on a particular topic, that verse will harmonize with the rest of the verses on that same topic. That's how we look at it as categorical study. We look at all the other verses that have to do with that category of doctrine, with that particular topic or issue, so that we can come out with, a verse, a right hermeneutic, a right interpretation that harmonizes with the rest of the Bible and then we can be uh, pretty well assured that we're on the right track. The one that we're going to start with tonight is Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. And we're going to see how that is used in a way that is not according to the rest of the Bible. It doesn't harmonize with all the other scriptures on that particular topic, at least the way some people take it. About two hours before it was time for me to leave, to come to class, I found a scripture that I had never seen before that can be, that it not can be, it is used in a way to allege that people can believe in the person of Jesus Christ and still not really be saved. And I was I looked at it and I can understand how they come to that conclusion. I went to my Bible software and some of the heavy hitters agreed that these people that there are people in this scripture, I'm not going to tell you right now what it is, but that uh, believed in Jesus Christ but they weren't truly saved. Now, what would you do if you read a scripture and someone referenced that to say, see, you can believe in the person of Jesus Christ and still not be truly saved? Would there be alarm bells go off in your mind? I would think so. But if you read the rest of what it says, you can say, oh, well, I understand how they came to that conclusion, but it's not the right conclusion. And it's incumbent upon us. God holds us responsibility to not just dabble around the fringes of Scripture, but to delve into it so that we can go to these Scriptures that some people are way off base on and be able to stay straight. And that takes study. That takes commitment. That takes concentration. And so that's what we do here most of the time is make sure that we are like Joshua, that we are going to... Meditate on these things day and night. That doesn't mean that we get lost going home because we're in so deep meditation about Scripture. But we need to think about these things and these verses and these subjects and how they can be twisted and distorted. Most people, most preachers, even, most pastors, aren't getting a lot of Scriptures right. And that's between them and the Lord, as far as Country Bible Church is concerned. I have to make sure that it harmonizes not only hermeneutically, but also isagogically and exegetically, so that when I give it to you, it's, it's as far as I can tell, to the best of my ability, I'm giving you the straight scoop. And then you weigh it, you see it, you, you go over the same scripture and you can see what the, what I would say the correct meaning is as opposed to those who would give it another meaning. I'd like to skip and I, I thought about it tonight, I'm just going to go right to the verse that I found that is so so easily misinterpreted, but I'm not going to because it has to do with the P instead of the I perseverance of the saints, and we're on irresistible grace. And we might get kind of to it tonight. I don't know. We'll see. We certainly won't if I just keep talking about it. So <laughs> let's, uh, if you have your Bibles, open to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. We touched on this a little bit last time. Philippians 1, 29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now, if you have a presupposition, if you have a, uh, you're you predisposed to a particular um, doctrinal slant, you see things in verses that aren't even there. We want to be careful that we don't do that. We want to be well-rounded with regards to our theology and bibliology. And what happens is a person, and I'm not trying to pick on Calvinists, but I was, I was a Calvinist one time, and I did this all the time. I would go through a verse like this. It says, For you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe. Now, what I do is connect the word granted and to believe, and in the Calvinist mind, aha, this underscores and substantiates irresistible grace. This is talking about God infusing grace into those that he chooses to save. That's the way a Calvinist would see this. But we have to look at the context. You know, I I know that the, the Greek and the Hebrew is very important, but it doesn't mean that you can't read the Scriptures for yourself and not come to conclusions and come to the right conclusions because you know what? Every time nearly overrides everything else with regards to the meaning of a verse. And I know Mike and Vidal know this because they better know what i taught them so many times. It is context. Always context is so exceedingly important. You can't just isolate one line or one verse out of, a, out of a context and try to give it any meaning that you want. That's what people do. We have to look at the all the surrounding. What is What is said before it? What comes after it? To get the context, and if you just do that, you'd be surprised how revealing the Scriptures are just by putting it in its proper context. Now, what I was, I said the word isagogues, isagogues means it is interpreting Scripture in the time in which it was written. And this is another thing that we do. We take Scriptures, and we want to take Old Testament Scriptures, New Testament Scriptures, pre-canon period Scriptures, and we want to make them relevant to us right now. We can't do that. We have to interpret Scripture. What was the writer trying to say? And we have to make it relevant to the time in which he wrote it. So, we have on the board, First uh, uh, Philippians one twenty nine. For you have, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Here's a quote from uh, Christian Dogmatics, Volume 2. It says, Scripture teaches that grace not only makes it possible for man to believe, giving him the power to believe, but it creates the very act of faith. And then they use Philippians 1.29 to verify this. And it says, Unto you it has been given to believe in Him. They leave out the rest of the verse, which puts it in context then he says, if grace does this and it is universal, which we say grace is universal, it's available to all mankind. And they say, if grace, is, uh, if grace does this and it is universal and not faith in all men, excuse me, and not only for the elect, then why does it not create saving faith in all men? Well, sometimes, you know, you're talking to people, And they're so far out there in left field, to make it relevant is hard to do because you're not even talking about the same thing. And they don't realize that sometimes. And so what we see here is he's saying that he's automatically thinking, you see I have the word power in bold because they think salvation has to do with power. And I keep saying it has nothing to do with power. It has to do with faith and what is your object of faith. It doesn't have. You don't have to be powerful to believe in Jesus Christ. So he's saying that it's a challenge. If this does, if grace does this, if it's been given to those to believe in Him, actually the verse says, "For it's been granted for Christ's sake to you." Now I've said this over and over, but it should be really sticking by now. Just because the Bible says in a particular place that this is pertinent to you, like this verse does, he's talking to the Philippians, it in no way means that it's pertinent only to you. And that's a fallacy and that's an error that so many people make. Oh, well, this says it's been granted to you, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Well, that means that the Philippians were... Believers, which means they were elect, and God is saying this is only for the elect. That's the rationale that some go through. Calvinists choose this verse to prove limited atonement, alleging that God grants salvation only to those for whom Christ died. And then we have a blurb here from Dallas Theological Journal and by Walford and. Uh, R.B. Zuck. It's from the. um, No, I'm sorry, it's not from a journal. It's from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. This is what it says. Suffering for Christ was not to be considered accidental or a divine punishment. This is why Paul was writing to the Philippians. Because they continued to suffer after they were saved and they didn't get it. They thought, what's the deal? We believed in Jesus Christ. We're now. Sons and daughters of the Most High, and we and we continue to suffering. Is He punishing? Why is He punishing us? And so Paul referred to a kind of suffering that was really a sign of God's favor. What, what do we call that? Undeserved suffering. The Greek word, uh, ek, uh, it's echaresthe. Uh, that's e c h a r i s t h e. Translated, granted, is derived from a word which means grace or favor. In other words, believing on Christ and suffering suffering for Him are both associated with God's grace. Now, this is one place where a Greek word comes out and it helps explain the verse. Because when it says, where is it up here? For it has been granted. That's the Euchariste. And... Some verses say it has been given for Christ's sake. But it means this is a special honor. This is, this is something that is special for you. And the whole point is to get the Philippians to understand that they're not suffering because God is angry at them. They're not suffering because God is punishing them. They're not suffering because they've done something wrong. They're suffering because they're doing what's right. And it's called undeserved suffering. Now, that's a hard one to get across to some people because they automatically associate suffering with punitive, punitive uh, discipline, something that, is, uh, uh, that you would not like to have. Now, this is for a more mature believer, even an adolescent believer, even maybe a believer that is just getting into spiritual adulthood. When he or she suffers undeservedly, what is the natural inclination? What do we want to do? That is not fair. I have every right to be angry. I have every right to get back at these people. I have every right to complain, to feel sorry for myself and all the rest. These are the things that happen when we get into this mode of not applying doctrine to the situation. So when you are in a situation and you know that this is undeserved, I don't deserve this, and and it's still going on, what should you do? (laughs) We should give thanks. That's what 1 Thessalonians tells us. We should give thanks in all things. And that is only for mature believers. The the kindergarten believer, that's over his head. He doesn't get it. That's what this verse is referring to. Paul was uh, writing to the Philippian believers, but just because he told them that it was granted to them to believe in Christ did not mean that it was granted to them and no one else. And the whole the issue here really isn't it was granted to them uh, to believe in Jesus Christ that that's not the issue. See, they're trying to make this salvific, and this verse is actually comparing something that is experiential, which is undeserved suffering, with the grace that was extended to them to believe in Christ. But it wasn't extended only to them. It was extended to who? Everyone else. Everyone else has the ability to understand the gospel through common grace, and we went through those already. Okay, now we come to another one. This one we're going to spend a little more time on. I had people, it's, it's I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't guess the, the word, the right word is fun, uh, but it's, it's exhilarating to me to teach you scriptures that I have been confronted with in the past. And I know what it's like to be confronted with this Scripture and not know the answer. And I know how it's like to be confronted with this Scripture and have the answer. And the latter is much better. And that's where I want you to be. Now, I don't know if anybody has ever held this up to you, trying to substantiate irresistible grace, but it might happen. Even if it doesn't, you need to assimilate this information into your soul so you'll have a better picture of our great God and the great grace that extends to us and to every person. So, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You might as well go there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I thought about teaching Hebrews before, but I have enough knowledge to know that you don't teach the book of Hebrews until the people are very well acquainted with the old testament i'm not saying you're not some of you haven't been here long enough to go through some of the old testament books that i have taught like first and second samuel and first and second kings no first kings and uh habakkuk that's right i taught habakkuk way back there you know <laughs> You know why I picked Habakkuk in the Old Testament? This was probably 17 years ago, or maybe a little longer. I thought, I'm going to go to the Old Testament, and I'm going to pick out a book. And Habakkuk was the shortest book I could find. I thought, maybe I can handle that one. Habakkuk is a phenomenal book, by the way. Anyway, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have... So great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also fix our eyes on Jesus. Now look what I have underlined here. This is where they start uh, vibrating. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility as by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, I have underlined the the pivotal point of this verse because I've had people say, you don't believe that God gives you the gift of faith in order for you to be able to believe in Jesus Christ? Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. So there, huh? take that. That's the way it was presented to me. God will never have anybody attack you like that. Well, Calvinists use verse 2 as proof to substantiate their belief in limited atonement. They claim that Jesus is the author, the originator of the faith one must have to be saved. In other words, the faith that you have to have to be saved, Jesus is the author of it. It is Jesus who produces the faith, not the unbeliever. That's the point. Okay? All right. What are we going to do with this verse? Well, first, let's look at the context of Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I'm giving you an exercise if if there was another verse other than this one and someone alleges that this is so-and-so. This is what this verse is saying. I'm showing you a technique. Okay, where do you start? You know that it doesn't fit in the parameters of orthodox theology. So what do you do? Okay, the first thing you want to do is let's look at the context of the chapter, of Hebrews chapter 12. What is it about? Well, it's about spiritual endurance and divine discipline. It's not a real long chapter, but you could just uh, kind of scan through it and get that information. Nothing in it speaks of eternal salvation It is all experiential. You can read through it, and that's going to start giving you clues right there. Because what they're doing is making this verse positional and alleging that Jesus is the author of your faith. He's the one that gives you the faith to believe because you can't come up with it because you're totally depraved. You're incapable of having faith on your own. And it's not conditioned upon... uh, God knowing that you are going to believe in the gospel, because maybe Christ didn't die for you, so He has to infuse this grace. And this is this is I mean this faith, and this is a verse that substantiates that. Now you might be sitting there thinking, "Man, that's a stretch," and you'd be right. But there's a lot of people that buy into it. So doesn't have anything to do with position; it's all experiential. The previous chapter, chapter 11, focuses on the great heroes of the faith who were experientially sanctified by trusting God. So we got the Scripture before is totally what? Experiential. The chapter 12 itself that you can go through. What is it? It's talking about enduring. It's talking about divine discipline if you don't endure. And the enduring doesn't have anything to do with endure to the end and you'll be saved. That's not what it's about. So that starts, starts us on the right track. Already we're starting to formulate something. And say, oh, "Okay, wait a minute. Something smells here. Doesn't look right. This doesn't fit." By faith is used 20 times in that chapter. That would be chapter 11. And not once does it refer to eternal salvation. Open your Bibles. Look at chapter 11. Just 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 glance through it. Chapter 11. Look, I count them 20 times. It says, by faith, by faith. by. That's a lot of times to say, by faith in one chapter, isn't it? Now, if this verse had to do with God giving faith for you to believe and have eternal salvation, wouldn't it be kind of awkward? Wouldn't it be out of place when you're talking about a chapter prior to this that has by faith 15 times and never talking about eternal salvation? The whole chapter that it, that you find it in is talking about divine discipline and encouraging you to endure and this type of thing. So we're getting more information here. We, In fact, we call chapter 11 the hero chapter, don't we? It's the heroes of the faith and what all the great exploits, the great things that they had done. Now, So we're going to look at some of the words. Some of the words we're going to look at, we're going to look at author, perfecter, and faith. Those are the pivotal words in the phrase that is in in question, right? So we'll start with author. First first thing to do is, if you don't have a Greek um, dictionary and you don't have Bible software that you can access the Greek and find out what the Greek word means, just go to an English dictionary. You can look that up. And so the English dictionary says, "author." What does this word mean? This is from the concise Oxford English Dictionary, eleventh edition, and it says, uh, "author" is a noun. It's a writer of a book, article, or report. The second one is a a, a, a originator of a plan or idea. Huh? That seems like it might be possible to fit, right? Isn't Jesus Christ uh, the originator of a plan? Didn't he fulfill a plan? And then the verb aspect is um, to be the author or originator of. And it just says of because it could be just about anything. Now, I could see where uh, a Calvinist might say, Aha, see, he's the originator of your faith. See? But that's a verb. This isn't a verb that's used. It's a noun that, that we have here. Okay? So let's go to the Greek. Let's go to the Greek dictionary. Uh, The uh, Greek word is our archegos. A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S. I'm sorry I didn't translate that into English. Um, I just didn't do it. But uh, archegos. And it has three definitions. Uh, One who has... A preeminent position, a leader, a ruler, or prince. Well, does that describe Jesus? He's all that, isn't he? One who begins something that is first in a series, thereby providing impetus for future further developments. Well, um, the first in a series, he was the first to establish. I'm going to show you in a moment that you don't have any English there is a definite article there, the faith, and that makes a difference. We'll see. And number three, one who begins or originates, hence the recipient of special, uh, 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 the recipient of special originator or founder. In other words, he is the founder of something. So those we're, we're narrowing it down. We're getting closer to what uh, is the meaning here. Now Jesus certainly holds a preeminent position. And is the founder and originator of the Christian faith. Is he not? Uh, I remember uh, when I went to Baraka, I heard the word protocol so much I wanted to gag when I heard it. Protocol, protocol, protocol. What is protocol? Protocol is doing something, uh, the, the white, uh, right, uh, doing the right thing in the right way. There is a system of protocol. For instance, if you're in the military and you, you're you a private and you have an issue, you don't go to the colonel, do you? That would not be the right protocol. protocol would be going to, I guess, the corporal, and then maybe the corporal would go to the sergeant, the sergeant goes to the lieutenant, the lieutenant goes to the captain, and so forth. See? So uh, he is the preeminent position and is the founder and originator of the Christian faith. So there is a protocol in The Christian faith. Jesus Christ was the... um, I'm trying to think of the word. I know it. Um, He was the... It's like protocol, but it's not protocol. Something that is an example. Prototype. Thank you. I'm up here playing charades nearly. I knew it started with a P, Uh, prototype. He was the prototype of what we are to be. He fulfilled God's plan to the letter. And in that way, he was the founder. He was the originator of the Christian faith. He was the prototype. Now, the word author suggests that Jesus pioneered the path of faith Christians should follow. He also perfected the way of faith since... He reached its end successfully. Now, this was from um, the Bible Knowledge Commentary as well. So that makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That he is the author, he is the founder, he is the prototype of the Christian faith. We follow his example. Is that, doesn't that all uh, sound reasonable? Let's go to the word protector. Protector is one who is entirely without fault or defect that satisfies all requirements. Now, let's look up here. Perfector, thank you. The author and perfector of our faith. See, I need somebody to tell me that. If I'm saying something and I say it more than once, especially... People, and probably some of you, and certainly people on the internet, what is he talking about? Okay, he is the perfecter of our faith. Now, that brings up some interesting questions I'll get to in a moment. But it means he is the perfecter. To be the perfecter, you have to be one who is entirely without fault, without defect, that satisfies all requirements. Well, did Christ do that? He did it in his entire lifetime. Now, the, uh, the Greek word here is teleotes. That's T-E-L-E-I-O-T-E-S. This is the way you would translate it into the English. It means one who brings something to a successful conclusion and perfecter. I had a hard time finding the word perfecter. They had, some of these big dictionaries had 15, 20 w- different words for starting with perfect. I only found one that said perfecter, and uh, that was the definition. Now, here's a quote from the uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Kittle and Bromley and Fredericks. Quote, Hebrews 11 has given several several illustration of pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, from the host of believers before Christ. I already brought that point out. Now, in Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus is set forth as the one in whom this host may be seen in prototype. I knew I saw that earlier. I started to look for it, but I'm afraid I might not find it. He is the one in whom this host of all those heroes may be seen as in prototype. And here we have Arkenos, A-R-C-H-E-N-O-S, and there it is right there. It's our word author. See there? Same word. In the proto- prototype Arkenos, and also as the one who has brought believing to completion by his high priestly work. So the idea here is this is the one that, is the author and perfecter of, your translation says faith, but the Greek says the faith. Now, let's look at faith. We're going to look at these words, and I'm going to make a few um, remarks. Faith is, uh, this is the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. First of all, it says allegiance to duty or a person, loyalty. Uh, B, it's B1, it says, The fidelity to one's promises, to sincerity of intentions. Do you see anything there that would make you think that the word faith here is referring to the faith that God gives you at salvation? It's talking about allegiance to duty, fidelity. Here's the Greek word, and we have three, three possible definitions or meanings from the word, taste, pistis, t-e-s-p-i. And that, that's the. By the way, that's the um, definite article. Is taste, and pistis is, of course, y'all recognize that as being faith. It, the first definition it says that which evokes trust and faith. The state of being someone in whom confidence can be placed. Faithfulness, reliability, fidelity. Faithfulness, reliability, and fidelity. Does that have anything to do with us with regards to eternal salvation? Any of those words? No. That's all experiential, is it not? Do those words, could those words apply to Jesus Christ? Of course they can. He's all of those things in the, in the, in the most um, permanent and important sense. The, the second meaning of pistis, state of believing on the basis of the reliability of one trusted, trust or confidence used that way a lot of times. But this, the third one, I believe, is the one that most applies to our verse. Number three, that which is believed, the body of faith, belief, or teaching. In other words, he is the author of of the faith, which is the body of knowledge, the body of our faith. Jesus is the author and perfecter of the faith that which is believed. Bible doctrine. In other words, it's saying Jesus is the author and perfecter of the faith, the body of knowledge that we believe, which is we refer to as what? Bible doctrine. The Calvinist cannot claim that he is the perfecter of our faith regarding the gospel because the non-elect are unable to have faith in Christ. How can God be the author and perfecter of someone's faith when the Calvinist says you can't have faith to begin with? How can he perfect something that you you don't have? Ah, y'all are chewing on that one. You want me to say it again? Okay, let's get up to where the verse is. Okay. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witness surrounding us, what is he talking about? The earlier chapter. All the heroes that by faith, experientially, did all these things. So great a cloud of witness surrounding us. Let us also fix our eyes on Jesus. The whole idea is look, these believers were stupendous because they kept their eyes on Jesus experience they were, we would say they were all experientially sanctified they 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 learned doctrine they knew doctrine and they applied doctrine so and so let us also fix our eyes on Jesus the author author and perfecter of the faith the faith now i'm saying that the Calvinists are saying, see, He's the author and perfecter of faith. And they say, oh, that's the faith that He gives to you. I'm saying, how can He perfect something? If He's the author of your faith and He's also the perfecter of your faith, how can He be the perfecter of something that you can't have? Because you can't have faith in, in Christ if you are if you believe in limited atonement and irresistible grace you can't have it God has to give it to you so how can he perfect something that a person cannot have I think it's sinking in now isn't that a good question I would certainly ask them that because you can't you can't just they would like to just mark out the and perfecter they just, he's the author of your faith meaning he's the one that infused grace into you of course that's not what it's talking about and He can't perfect Faith that you can't come up with anyway. Hope I don't make you dizzy here. Okay. Um, That's what I was talking about when it cannot be the perfecter of faith regarding the gospel because the non-elect are unable to have faith. He can't perfect what they can't come up with. The doctrine of irresistible grace claims that God irresistibly gives faith to those who... uh, to those God chooses to save and of course withholds it from those he chooses not to save The following verse is their go-to verse to substantiate their claim are you ready? We don't have to go to it because you all know the verse anyway there it is Ephesians 2 eight and 9 especially ephesians verse uh, chapter two verse eight so, are any of you aware of this controversy? Are any of you aware how they would go to this? Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Ephesians 2.8.9. Now, you'll notice up here. Now, if you go to your Bible in this, you can mark down in your Bible some of these little little nuggets here I have. For by grace, and I have an F there because grace is in the feminine gender. For by grace, feminine gender, you have been saved. That's a pa- a perfect passive participle. You know what the perfect tense means? It means you, you received this grace, and it's a, the M stands for masculine. It's in the masculine gender. And it comes from the root word, soteria, where we get salvation. So, for by grace, feminine, you have been saved, masculine, through faith. And faith is feminine. And that, see the, how that's red? And that is a demonstrative pronoun, nominus, singular, neuter. And that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast, lest anyone should boast. Okay, you all know that verse. Oh, it's a powerful verse. But the question is, see what the Calvinist says, I don't know if you've heard this, I thought you all all knew this or had understood this. This is what the Calvinist says. The Calvinist say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourself. The faith is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. You got that? Oh, yeah. Make a big deal over that one. And they'll argue with you till the cows come home that the that there refers to the faith. That it's the faith that's the gift. Okay? Have any of you ever had... Michael, you have, hadn't you? Yeah, about it. Okay. Y'all need to get out more. I mean, I've had this dozens of times with people. Now, they claim that, what you see in bold, uh, in, in red, refers to faith and not to the grace or to salvation. Now, normally, when that, T H A T, is in the neuter gender, it must modify a word in the neuter gender. But there are no words in the in its gender in the sentence. See? Okay, What here we have the demonstrative pronoun that, and it's in the neuter gender. Well, grace is feminine, saved is masculine, and faith is feminine. There's not a word in there that's neuter, is it? So how can we determine... What that is talking about. See, we're, we're into exegesis now. We're into grammar. We're into etymology. We have to figure these... Well, I know you're not figuring this out, but I have to figure it out because the answer is there. And we'll get to it. Yes. Well, this guy here, uh, Baal, he goes into Greek words fairly often. And this is a good example. He goes into Greek word. Just because someone goes into the Greek, first of all, doesn't mean they know anything about Greek. Uh, Second of all, just because they throw out a Greek word, doesn't mean it's not that's even relevant to what the question is anyway. Uh, and, And there are listen, there are Greek scholars that that can go into they can read Homer and the Iliad. They can read all these things, and they're not even saved. It's important to understand the Greek because I'm going to show you right here why it is, but just because somebody throws out a Greek word, don't think, oh well they must, they must be they must know what they're talking about. They got a Greek word there. What? no, not too much. They'll throw a Greek word out. Okay, now here's the answer right here. It refers to something mentioned in, in the context immediately preceding it. That's what we're going to see. because got, you see, the Greek is like the English in this. If I said, uh, here, Craig is going to go to HEB uh, after church, and it is going to get some groceries. What? And it? Huh? I mean, it's glaring, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't all of you say, What? It? I mean, that's how blatant it is. So this can't modify something that's masculine or feminine. It's got to be. Something that's neuter. And there's nothing there that's neuter. So we have to go to the verses previous to that. So, what is the context of the four verses preceding verse 8? Let's go to our Bibles and let's look at this because I don't have it up here. Go to your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 2. If we go just to the um, preceding verse, the verses that precede. Well, let's just start in verse 1. How about that? That's pretty much going to get the context right. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you, were formerly, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Underline walk there walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived, underline lived, we also formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even... As the rest. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, What, what are we seeing here? We're seeing the word um, Grace. By grace, and we have the word saved, right? Even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Positionally, we're already up there with Christ. That's what this is essentially saying. Verse 7, and order that in the ages to come... He might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Now, in verses, in chapter 2, we read seven verses preceding verse 8. Did you see the word faith? Did you see the word grace? Yes. Did you see the word salvation? Yes. So this is the this is what you do if you have a demonstrative pronoun and it doesn't modify anything in the sentence. You have to go to the verses preceding it and in context, what is it talking about? It's talking about grace, it's talking about salvation. It's talking about how they live formerly in the lust of the flesh, and then in Verse 4, it kind of changes. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love, here we have love which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We've got the same, same phrase right there. So what I'm saying is the answer to what is that, the demonstrative pronoun modifying, it's modifying Grace and salvation, not from this word, I mean not from this sentence. You don't go to the grammar here when there's nothing there because there's nothing there in the neuter gender. You have to go to the preceding context and see what it's referring to and that is what it's referring to. It's referring to the whole salvation package is what it's referring to. It is clearly the grace of God providing salvation. The word faith isn't even mentioned. If no one could believe in Christ apart from God giving us the faith to believe, then the words faith and believe would have to be in the passive voice. Okay, that's something else. I'll get into that in a minute. So what I want you to understand is that for anyone who would say that the gift of God in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 is the faith, it can't be the faith because uh, faith is in the feminine gender. It can't be that. And you say, well, it can't be saved. It can't be grace either. Grace is so we go to the the context. You read it for yourself. The word of faith isn't even there. What it's talking about is by grace are you saved. Okay. This would mean a lot more to you if you had been confronted with this. Okay. Oh, man. Um, Okay, I'll go ahead with what I was saying there. Just a couple of points. I'm not going to get to that one I was so anxious to give you that I found, I was talking about earlier. We'll get that Thursday night. Anyway, it says, "If, If no one could believe in Jesus Christ apart from God giving the faith to believe, then words like faith and believe would have to be in the passive voice, right? If you can't come up with it, you have to receive it from God. He has to infuse it into you. It would have to be in the passive voice. You can't do it. So it's something received. You understand that? Yes. Okay. But these words are always in the active voice. Always in the active voice, indicating that the person believing the gospel produces the action of the verb, not God. You can can go in your Bible. In fact, I won't get to it tonight. Maybe I can at least show you. See all these words. See all these verses right here. All of them believe, 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 believe. All of them have to do with believing in, in Christ. Okay. I have I don't know fifteen so so, but there's a lot more. Every time you're in the Bible and you're looking at the word believe and it's referencing your your faith at salvation. Every time you're going to find it in the active voice. What does that mean? What it means if something, if I said, I'm going to pick on you tonight, Craig. If I said, uh, Craig hit the ball, well, hit is in the active voice. What did Craig do? Did it, if it says, uh, Craig was hit by the ball, it Craig didn't do the action, the ball did the action. But Craig hit the ball, he produced the action. And that's, so I'm trying to explain to you, if it's in the active voice, it means that the subject, the person who, the faith, whoever believed, is that person who produced the action of the verb. And every time you see it, even here, by faith, um, for by grace you have been saved, uh, through faith, active, 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 all the time, it's because you produce the action. If it was the other way around, if God had to give you that faith because you couldn't come up with it, it would be in the what? Passive voice. It would be something you received instead of something that you did. Now, the only problem is some people say, oh, well, you're that's work salvation. You're talking about something you did. Well, faith is non-meritorious. There's no merit to it because... Now, I'm going to end right now. Make my night and get this right, okay? There is no merit in faith. Why? Because the object of faith always gets the the credit. Gets is is the one that has the merit, not not the one having faith. If you understand that, see what everybody does that are confused and they don't have any eternal. Security, they think, oh, well, they, they focus on the faith. They, oh, did I have enough faith? Did I have the right kind of faith? Was it head belief? Was it heart? They're always focusing on the faith. Well, the faith is just a. It, you don't focus on the faith. That's not what's imparted in this sense. It's the object of the faith that matters. You can, have, you can be the most devout Muslim in the world, you can have more faith in Muhammad and Allah than anybody else in the world. Now, is that going to save you? Yeah, but look how much faith you have. You have the right kind of faith. You have a mountain of faith in Muhammad. Is that going to save you? No. Why? Because it's the object of faith that matters. It's the object of faith that gets all the credit. Okay. Okay. I'm just getting wound up and here I just... Okay. Y'all don't look as wound up as I do. Is it that hard? Huh? (laughs) Yeah. Has any of you ever... Had contact with the Calvinist one you have one what I know two two of us have three come on, y'all are bashful, you just three, huh you say which ones <laughs> they got their own problems uh. Um, yeah, they, uh, I don't know of any Church of Christ personally that are Calvinists. There probably are some there, because it's not germane to any particular denomination. Uh, there are, Pente- there are even Pente- there. There's Pentecostals that are Calvinists. There's uh, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterians, um, Catholics, even. Uh, if you're a Calvinistic Catholic. You are confused. (laughs) So, you know, but they're just out there. And even if you haven't run into one, we don't know that there might be a chance that you might run into one. Now that we've studied it, you're probably going to have your opportunity. Uh, It's still important to have these under your belt. You see, the Holy Spirit can't pull this information out if it hadn't been planted to begin with. And it helps, us, it helps me appreciate God all the more. I am so thankful that He is not the monster that, is, that I see as a monster with regards to Tulip. Okay, um, yes, quickly. Oh yeah, but but you see, the Calvin—that's—he's that, only kind—that's only poured out to the elect. You know, uh, uh, if you ever know a, a Calvinist, and I'm not trying to besmirch him, I was one, I, and I look back and I'm so thankful that the Lord extracted me out of that because next time we're going to get on the pers- perseverance of the saints, and they have no assurance, and it is a black hole to be there and not have any assurance and be wondering and having the... It's just a mess. But we'll get to that next time. Let's close. Father, thank You for this time to fellowship in Your Word. We thank You that You are a God of mercy, love, and grace. We thank You that we can use unmeritorious faith, just simply accepting Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and recognizing that we can't get in on our own merit. It's not... It's it's simple, but it's hard for some to get past that barrier thinking that it can't be that easy. It wasn't easy for you. It wasn't easy for Christ, but you've made it easy for us in the sense that you've left us out of it. We're so glad that you have. All we do is receive the free gift by faith in Christ. We pray that you will help us to give this message loud and clear as we talk to other people. And we can boldly claim that Christ died for their sins. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.